Welcome to the November Poems 2019. Um, I will be grouping the poems together by month. So please enjoy uh, the first poem of this month that I'm going to read is called Febus Moniz Street, A Sonnet of Loyalty. 1580 was a long time ago, so full of titles, Lord of the Morgado, Prosecutor of the City of Lisbon, President of the Deputies of the Kingdom of Towns, he served the crown of Sebastian until one day Cardinal Enrique came around tried to persuade him to stand with the king of Spain. Febus replied he preferred to die. He was arrested, and die he did. 1580 was a long time ago, yet his street lives, with the Szechuan noodle house, the Nepalese night store, the Portuguese cafe, the cathedral bell clock rings on the hour, the fire, Brigade tower alarm occasionally sounds for a fire, and a poet sits to remember him in a moment of loyalty. This poem is titled Flood Tide Night and Slack Water Morning, a sonnet for Saturn's glory. When you live in, in Lisbon, uh, near the, the Atlantic Ocean, the ocean waves and, and the, the movement, the fluidity of it affects your entire day and especially your night. And so this poem is about that phenomena. Flood tide night and slack water morning, a sonnet for Saturn's glory. I slept in a motion drift in the moon's darkness sea levels rising in my mind, storm surges in my closed eyes, the ocean cleanup scrubbing my humid skin. My spirit took a swim last night in Lake Titan, flew home on the dragon tail of Okeanos, this giant river that circles the world, circles the world in me, leaves me speechless as my wife asks me to understand the law of attraction the moment my head drops on the pillow. I am the law's undulations, I whispered, swelling with a sublunar only to dive Mariana's trench with wings, touch the deep in a dream, and return to our bed resting under the cosmic rings of plenty and peace. This poem is titled The Incredible Shrinking Truth, a Sunday sonnet. It's a poem about the days when you're not looking for anything, you're not trying to achieve anything, you're just living and alive and enjoying the moment. Sundays, those are the days that that is especially true when you're with your family and eating all the delicious seafood. And this poem is about that, that beautiful moment, those beautiful days, those Sundays. The Incredible Shrinking Truth, 
a Sunday sonnet. The display of living seafood, the kind neighbor, her kind laughter, Sophia's angelic voice under a guitar strum, the thunder when we clap, the breaking waves at my feet, the shore's lap when I sleep, Portugal, her stars, her grace, these are luxuries. I need boiled salted codfish, a leaf of broccoli, a touch of parsley, my wife's love, the children's hugs, peace with what I did and did not do, this poem to realize I am already home, this is the truth. This poem is titled Inventing Words, a sonnet not made for English. Living in a foreign country, you become very sensitive about words and about how in some languages that word doesn't even exist or it's feeling. Uh, being in a, a marriage with a, with a partner who's not from your country, not from your culture, also makes you very sensitive. Uh, my dad used to always remind me, two languages, two men. Inventing words, a sonnet not made for English. To breathe, to walk is a reminder of the limits of my language in all its splendor. I have married a world so foreign. She has left me quiet and mute as if I scribble alone to learn the meaning of words. Hospitality is blunt and superficial. Longing is pathetic and selfish in essence. Sincerity vibrates as if it mocks the very notion. Shame and shameless are no different in English. And love, this desperate word, is lost in millennia of confusion. Mind power is impotent. Physical senses try in vain. I feel as if I must pray or get back on the wheel of 84 to catch a vision of the words that wait. Only the soul, it seems, can invent. Rather, perhaps only the soul of a child can. This poem is titled, When Poets Meet. Uh, I have a, a friend here in, in Lisbon who's a, a poet. Uh, he's older and more experienced than I. And uh, occasionally we get together for lunch. And when we do, I really see that this is important work and that I'm not alone. When poets meet, we work with words in the morning, search for their real meaning without meter. We never discuss techniques or alliteration or trivial matters like iambic pentameter. Only the soul of a stanza mashed together when poets meet. We order food and eat from the same plate, share memories of our best meals, that day in Manhattan, that night in Berlin, when we fell in love and why. When poets meet, we talk about life and living it fully, how this is our true art daily. Yes, we talk about death and disappointments, 
but never regrets. Regrets don't exist for a poet. This poem is titled The Olive Tree and Bamboo Grass Serenade Imposters. Uh, as a young student in, in Sevilla, I used to often jump on a train and go out to these little villages that smelled like burning olive oil, and I'd walk along the olive tree groves. And I remember feeling moved by it and how different the, the spirit of that tree was from the ones I remember as a kid. Um, and I just, uh, the other day, was taking a walk and, and came upon a, an olive tree. And it took me back and it took me to stories I'd heard and, and things that I felt and remembered. The Olive Tree and Bamboo Grass Serenade Imposters. I will never forget the first time I saw an olive tree. I was 18 in Andalusia. I heard a voice whisper, this is real. Since I have witnessed enlightened voices grip a room, power language that forced people to move, beauty that can obsess, and displays of gold that hypnotized into a trance. Whoever said that the wicked are unwise or that the true of heart and mind aren't fools. The poor souls, all of us, trying to distinguish the real. Beloved old uncle once said, he took his leave in Denang, wrapped himself in white sheets on a cot like a mummy in a mongdong, singing to the shelling before he'd take R and R in a manila brothel and end up bleeding out in the streets from a rusty, broken cola bottle at the hand of a 14-year-old thief. I found what was real in a stick of bamboo. Ruthless it is, poor souls, he'd say, that North Mobile County way. The kid bound up in poverty, the dead soldier, and the mother who was never told the truth. This poem is entitled The Enthronement of Naruhito. Uh, a few years ago, I traveled to Japan for the first time, and I was overwhelmed by the dignity in the culture. Of course, since then, I've, I've followed um, you know, Japanese news and human interest pieces uh, a lot since then. And uh, just the other day, the enthronement of uh, the, the enthronement of the imperial um, monarch, Naruhito, occurred. This poem is about that. The enthronement of Naruhito, the world's oldest monarchy, is what I repeated again and again while quietly staring at his eyes. I must look through purple silk and scarlet lining to see, imagining the sun at its peak in the sky. I returned to his eyes and felt the peace 
of the Kugo harp and the wind youth. This poem is titled Losing Touch with America, an Inland Sonnet. It's really about the phenomena of as the years pass and you live outside the United States, uh, it makes you really reflect on what American identity meant, what it still means to you. And that's becoming every day more relevant because there's so much change occurring in America, in its identity, in its place in the world. Losing touch with America, an inland sonnet. I never thought I would lose. I fixed the lieutenant colonel's blue hat every morning at the door after breakfast in Bellevue. I knew his work was important, I knew. And my grandfather's service was too. This is what love and pride feels like, hot. Wrapping a yellow ribbon around the tree in 80 before school, knowing you will never lose. That I would never lose touch of the snow, not me. My hands were cold. I would never lose the intimacy with what I knew. Madison's mother next door who baked for me with love as I took my gloves off cold knew that too, and so did my coming world I lost. This poem is titled Sangam Poets. An old friend of mine whom I haven't seen in, in several years uh, came through Lisbon the other day and we had lunch. I knew that he was a Tamil from southeastern India, but I had never really inquired about what that meant uh, for him. And I, I just kind of did some reading and research, and the deeper I got into the history and what an old civilization it is, uh, and how meaningful it is to be a Tamil, uh, impressed me so much. When we had lunch, uh, I felt a camaraderie simply because I'd done a little bit of homework, and I felt like I I had a much better understanding of him and how much we really had in common. Sangam Poets I am a Tamil poet in the presence of a Tamil. We share deep beliefs about sincerity, like serving food to others is a sacred service to humanity. We live in the residence of God here in Portugal and are not afraid of village deities. We belong to the last surviving classical civilization, watching the snake dance, dancing it as we laugh over lunch. This poem is titled The Beaches of Avencas, Sea Fever. There is a, a beautiful reserve uh, near my home, and I love to, to walk on the beach there. There are often gentlemen who are walking with me, and 
I always find them so interesting. Uh, they walk with their arms clasped behind their back. And you can tell that they stop and just very patiently watch the sea. It's really an ode to the beauty of nature, this beach, and them. The beaches of Avencas, sea fever. Stepping through the rock puddle mirrors, feeling the breath of the shh of waves, that global sound of whispers from a great shell. On a misty Atlantic morning, I hear piano keys. The approaching symphony of a sea storm. I hear and am not alone. The baby Navalleda crabs scamper as I look for their beautiful mother in armor, bathing in the hypnotic tentacles of an anemone. Sanderlings, turnstones, and various ghouls liven up and lighten my clumsy feet. Starfish at the lip of sea lettuce play in the green algae, taunting the still limpets. Marachomba and conquer circulate among us under the watchful eye of a common octopus. A Portuguese gentleman in his navy blue raincoat and bright round white rain cap walks quietly by with his hands clasped behind his back and pauses as if to wish an overture of a calm sea and a prosperous voyage. I wish I had such kind class. I smile back to show him my heart and share my own fate of a quiet sleep and a sweet dream. This poem is titled The Asturias Leyenda. The legend of Asturias is a, a, a very famous Spanish Andalusian song. Uh, I just uh, coincidentally heard it the other day and it took me back to a very specific series of memories. The Asturias Leyenda has lived in my mind of melodies Spanish chants, bulerias, strumming huergas. Since the university days, I rode a bike I found in the trash to school. Albanese filled the gypsy street, the stairwell of my obrero building burning in olive oil. The cafe owners below hung a bag of leftovers to show they cared for me. The Bulgarian neighbor who played the legend on his cello at bedtime would tell his son, Radustin, to sing along in their mother tongue. Every night was a different copla, all under the legend's pedal notes, signaling the rise of life's opening score. He cared who I would become. I was happy mysteriously taught by the world's neighborhood what the word means, how the thumb is stronger than the pick, how to hear and love in acoustic, how Asturias was a name that was misleading, deflecting the soul 
of an Andalusian song, so I would never forget. This little piece of prose is titled Windy Lisbon. It's just about sitting outside and people watching on a beautiful windy day in Lisbon, Portugal. Windy Lisbon, busy and content is enough. It is a moment for prose because Portugal is neutral and cosmopolitan with a provincial soul today, and this is visible. African businessmen stroll in fine ties. Students are on the move on public bikes. Uber boys from Brazil wait outside the yakisoba ramen curry box. Fernando Pessoa walks with his dour black bag stuffed with ink papers. I see him. Colorful scarves are out, matching the trees and the dreams they all store inside. Gentlemen in suits whisper, que linda. Some sit, drink wine, smoke behind sunglasses under the clouds. Bio markets, bio noodles, bio fruit dot the street. The traffic is measured. The people are up and on their feet. This is Lisbon, where we all meet. This poem is titled On the Golden Tagus. The Tagus uh, River in Portugal, which is called uh, Tejo, Rio Tejo, is the largest, most important river system in this country, and it originates in Spain. Just as the Atlantic defines the coastline, uh, the southern coastline is defined by the Mediterranean. The countryside is, is defined in many ways by the Tagus. Poetry is is a meditation, really, to constantly remind yourself that every moment is precious in your life. On the golden tagus, picking shrub flowers along the river, ignoring the ingots, ignoring the city noise, trying to decipher what I'm longing for. Student school is over, yet I haven't lost desire. There is no general's orders to wait for in an autumn moon this morning on the river. Cutting through me as the wind sways trees, carrying on my allegiances, my quest alone, writing a sonnet with the poets of stone. While I get older, the river remains young. With many voices, the river, my flying daughter, my distant son, the small ones in their fullness of truth and love. This poem is titled Hometowns. I'm very fortunate my 84-year-old father uh, has moved to, to Lisbon. And I go over to, to visit him in the mornings. And we talk. He's deeply influenced by Hinduistic traditions, and we talk about that. And we talk about the past, and we talk about hometowns. Hometowns. I sat with my father while it rained in the way only a Monday can pour. We talked about how we picked our hometowns from a point in the sky after endless wandering with purpose. 
how we evolved and why on a cyclic existence. I closed his window. It was getting chilly. His hometown is Wolf Point, Montana. He told me why it took 84 years to see with full sun and time, why he picked 1935, why his mom and dad, why his brothers, why my mother picked him. We sat in silence. Then I told him a dirty joke about a bear and a hunter in the forest. It took him a moment, like a phoenix from a fire, until he understood. Then he laughed. This uh, little piece of prose is titled, Remember Who You Are Standing Before. Uh, a friend of mine uh, is a rabbi at the local synagogue. And uh, he gave me a tour uh, the other day at the end of Yom Kippur. And at the, the main hall, there's a giant uh, inscription on the wall that, uh, that says in Hebrew, remember who you are standing before. Remember who you are standing before. My rabbi buddy gave me a tour of the Lisbon synagogue today for the end of Yom Kippur. And we decorated the Sukkot hut my height helped with the palm leaves on the roof. I loved the depth of the traditions, the Torah being sung, the timeless age of everything in the room, tomes of Talmuds on the wall, and especially a friend who opened the door. This poem is titled the sonnet of Samuel Little. Uh, last, the other day I was reading the New York Times and there was just a terrifying profile of a prolific serial killer um, whom now the FBI effectively believes he murdered 93 young women of color. And uh, it's... I usually don't write poems about such uh, sad matters, but uh, the injustice of it all moved me. The Sonnet of Samuel Little The FBI declared today he is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Nobody cared. Now, in his dying years, he pleads with laughter to convince authorities he took 93 women's lives. 50 killings are confirmed and, quote, all confessions are credible, unquote. Profiles in tragic apathy with a smile, he paints their portraits to give them beauty, justice no one else would form. God put me on earth to do what I did. He made me, Samuel said with cosmic irony. Apparently the police and FBI agreed. So did we. Now maybe we can give Samuel a medal 
and early release. This poem is titled Fatima's Tavern. One of the beautiful traditions in Portugal is the family-owned tavern. They're also very lively. The food is always dependable and delicious. And the, the men and women who own and run these taverns are often very colorful personalities. I just love, I just love the tascas and taverns of this country. Fatima's Tavern. Olive oil streaks the window clutter, soils the aprons, leaves index prints on paper wall ads. Fatima greets you and kicks you out. Fatima is the mix of cream, codfish, and the bite of a raw onion with fire pepper. Nobody is special while everyone is. A five points tough love unseen since Eunice. She'll shove an old timer out the way, then pat his butt on the way back. She'll seat you with a stranger, then stare you cold and stern. Be nice. Be kind and nice, that is. I couldn't even bite back. She gave me a poetic license, then revoked it with my own spit. This is what it is, a quick plucking string, a canto, the sound of frying fish, the sound of her equality, her knife. Here, Fatima is the king of spirit and queen of life. This poem is titled Bomberos. Uh, Bomberos means firemen. There's a very old, a hundred-year-old firehouse near the principal plaza of Marcus Pombal. And there's a small cafe restaurant up on the top floor. You have to walk up the floor, and as you do, you see the photos of a hundred years of firemen. Bomberos. Lunch with friends, as one of them mentioned, no small talk here. Like what it feels to be an ant on a leaf floating on a great lit sea. The firehouse top floor cafe was made of sal sopa, fried chicken, beef and pork fillets on a diner griddle, hot fries and the day's old oil. The sound of a whipping chiado fire and breathing oxygen tanks, followed by a wooden clap. Their photos filled the room's energy. A house of domestic soldiers and their stories climbing up the burning steps. This poem is titled Turicum. Turicum is the Roman ancient name of modern-day Zurich in Switzerland. Uh, one of the joys of living in, in Europe is, is everything's close and yet so different and diverse. I try my best to, to dive into a city's soul and pay attention to the tiny little things I see. Turicum. Zurich places me somewhere I recognize, but cannot remember. 
castles and garrisons, hard, tender, collecting tolls and so naturally minting a coat of arms since the beginning, flanked by lions in a continental climate. As I walk through the streets, the canton, I cannot help but feel the presence of aristocratic women looking over me, watching their history unfold as if imperial immediacy was theirs alone. Murals dot the city, place them in the center. I see them. Statues display their bare, robust alabaster bodies, unafraid of winter, only in the way a leader can be. I see them not knowing why to enter Frau Munster, women's minster, abbeys and crypts, lairs of spirit and power appear to me as did Louis the German and unlock the mysteries seen by a foreigner. This piece of prose is called Tally House. Often when I'm traveling in Europe, I really enjoy all the food from, from Asia, uh, Vietnamese food in Berlin, uh, Moroccan food in France. But uh, in Switzerland, I could not believe how many delicious curry houses there were. And the northwestern uh, Punjabi uh, had just had a particularly strong presence in Zurich, for example. And I entered a small family restaurant called the Tally House. Tally House. Portugal is my beloved firstly for the food, but when I leave, I crave curries. I scour the streets of Europe looking for the right tali, Punjabi, Uttar Pradesh, North Indian mix of flavors, dali and roti, buttery naan and creamy dahi yogurt, biryani, korma and madras coconut sauces, turmeric powders that turn tomatoes and onions into a smiling orange chowder. Lightly fried okra, even better than in my home, Alabama. Pickled chutney and spicy peppers worth writing home about to mama. Perhaps M.S. Gopal Krishnan isn't twanging his violin in the corner, but I'll beat the drum. This tally house, ma'am, and her metal plates makes me wish she was my mother. Like most American poets, I was deeply influenced by Walt Whitman. The part that's so unusual about my exposure to, to him and his writings was I was growing up in Alabama at the time. And, uh, you know, Walt Whitman was not a celebrated figure. <laughs> uh, Robert E. Lee was, but uh, not Walt Whitman, certainly not at the time. And I, the, the part that's so funny is I read him, if you can imagine, I read him hearing the voice of a southern accent. I was probably 14 years old, so I didn't quite understand the dynamics of the Civil War. So imagine reading Lilacs, you know, uh, an elegy of uh, 
Abraham Lincoln, but with a southern accent. I'm going to read uh, Whitman's The World Below the Brine precisely because it's not a political poem. It's a poem of beauty, but I'm going to read it with a southern accent. Uh, also, of course, much like uh, Whitman's work, he loved to be in the public. You know, I'm in a very public cafe right now. It's noisy, uh, but there's something, there's a solidarity, there's a humanity about reading, writing, listening, uh, to poetry in a public space. The world below the brine. The world below the brine. Forest at the bottom of the sea. The branches and leaves. Sea lettuce. Vast lichens. Strange flowers and seeds. The thick tangle. Opening and pink turf, different colors, pale gray and green, purple, white and gold, the play of light through the water, dumb swimmers there among the rocks, coral, gluten, grass, rushes, and the aliment of the swimmers, sluggish existences, grazing there suspended or slowly crawling close to the bottom, the sperm whale, at the surface, blowing air and spray, or disporting with his flukes. The lead-nard shark, the walrus, the turtle, the hairy sea leopard, and the stingray. Passions there, wars, pursuits, tribes, sight in those ocean depths, breathing that thick, breathing air, as so many do. The change thence to, to the sight here, and to the subtle air breathed by beings like us who walk this sphere. The change onward from ours to that of beings who walk other spheres. This piece of prose is titled A Bittersweet Piece of Sunday Prose. The, you know... I was a basketball player and to watch my son play basketball and think about the context when I played just takes me back. A bitter sweet piece of Sunday prose. I spent the morning watching Douglas play basketball. He is so beautiful and graceful. I observed with admiration the Portuguese culture. These youngsters were truly sportsmanlike, full of camaraderie and solidarity. I could feel that they were competing for the love of the game and not just to win. I could feel that they respected each other, were free from anger. I could feel it. I could feel they are not cursed with bone-fed racism or the mean spirit that tries to humiliate or injure. I know what I mean when I make that statement. I could feel the heartfelt support of the families, the sentimental support of the community members, the heritage of the neighborhood club. And when the match ended, the kids came to the stands to shake our adult hands. It was an honor. Just as I began to glow in the joy I feel 
to know my son is safe in a kinder world. A slow bereavement slowly consumed me. That old quarrel with myself that opened the door and let in the tensions that I believed remained locked up across the Atlantic. Like a raging gang of prodigal orphans, they suddenly appeared and sat on my lap. This poem is titled, Poetry Picked Me, a Sonnet of Gratitude. I've been writing a lot of sonnets lately. I find them very uh, compact ways to, to, to deliver an idea. This uh, sonnet invokes a lot of, uh, you know, spirituals. Uh, I talk so much about Alabama. I mean, it's I've been many more years outside of Alabama than I've been in it. But, uh, you know, when you're down on a Sunday playing basketball, <clears throat> you know, in the community, and you walk by or step to the door of a, of a, of a black church, and, you know, you would hear these spirituals. And so I recognize them. Uh, and they still find a way to, to sow themselves inside my, my world and my understanding. Poetry picked me, a sonnet of gratitude. Like a secret coded chant, poetry gave me a way to grieve, sing, see the beauty in anything, permission to feel and fly, Poetry gave me magnificence, awe, a way to wade in the water, gave depth to my voice, gave me a deep river to accept all that I could not understand, live with a little less judgment and more peace. Poetry gave me eyes, poetry gave me four big changing seasons. Poetry allowed me to hear others pray. Poetry gave me the ability to stand in, oh, freedom. I'm in Madrid at the moment. Uh, this is a city that I've been coming to uh, for more than 20 years, and it's one that's very close to my heart. This is just a playful piece of prose about the observations of being in this vibrant city, and it's titled Madrid. Madrid is as much a hometown to me as any I feel natural and comfortable here among the fun, foodie madrileños. <clears throat> I'm around for a day to see a dear old buddy. We'll talk about life and writing while eating hot Spanish soul food. I love to warm up with a bowl of pheasant and white bean guiso, then merluza, hake, and salsa verde. 
the streets are so loud and vibrant, especially during the red holiday season, that it recharges me. I stroll around this super Saturday in my old school olive green hunting jacket and green hunting hat to command a little country gentleman respect. <laughs> Madrid is big these days, but not menacing. Latin America is here, the world too, but it doesn't compromise the provincial essence of the traditional town it is. Tapa bars filled to the gills with all generations sipping, munching chatter, the din of burning olive oil, cackling laughter, kind greetings, irreverent humor, the joy of the most socially intense folks I've ever witnessed. Flying in over the flat, empty Castilla de la Mancha, later walking the royal palace, one can imagine the long, lonely trips and horse and carriage to see something in these streets from an authority or to see the king. I imagine meeting Felipe II, then reading Don Quixote on a random plaza. Madrid has a soul, and it, it is its very own. <laughs> <laughs>